0: can it be up close and personal with the real people behind the hits and misses in Boston's venture capital big time. My name is Mike Triano and I'm the chief marketing officer of Actifio and a limited partner in Boston's own G20 Ventures. You can follow me on Twitter at MikeTrap and check out my Medium blog at MikeTrap.com. Each week we'll be getting to know one of the luminaries in our local startup community and drill into a specific area of their expertise for the benefit of other entrepreneurs and investors. My guest this week is Yuman Choi, Managing Director of Bain Capital Ventures Healthcare Team. Yuman joined Bain in Boston last year after 10 years culminating as a general partner at HLM Venture Partners. At HLM, he led a variety of investments across healthcare IT and services sectors, serving as a board director for Able2, Impulse Mobile, Oceans Healthcare, PaySpan, which was acquired by Primus Capital, Spinal Kinetics, and Vets First Choice. Uh, Yuman has a really interesting background, born in Seoul, South Korea, uh, lived in Japan as a child, and then moved to Hawaii at age 10, where he attended the Punho School, uh, which you may know as President Obama's uh, alma mater. Uh, He served with me on the New England Venture Capital Association's Board of Directors and as an investor and mentor in several healthcare accelerators, including Blueprint Health, Healthbox, Startup Health, Rock Health, and 500 Startups. Eumann serves on the boards of overseers for the Boston Symphony Orchestra and the Oversight Committee for Boston University's Coulter Foundation. He also serves as a lecturer in the Gordon Institute at Tufts University, where he taught entrepreneurial finance. I think my conversation with Eumann about the job of being a VC is probably the most illuminating I've had to date, focusing on the importance of building a network, looking for patterns in the dots of what can be hundreds of near misses and good ideas below the threshold of yes, and staying open to opportunities, regardless of their source or pedigree. Our second segment, though, is about the single event that probably shaped Yuman's views on the value of healthcare innovation more than any other, his own diagnosis with cancer at age 31, and a subsequent treatment regime that, all by itself, almost killed him. Now, this is not the usual blah, blah, blah about relationships and venture, folks. You know, try as we always do to avoid that. My conversation with human was about his journey to understand why what he was doing mattered. And I was inspired by him and his story in a way that uh, I really hope you will be too. All right. After you hear it, you will definitely want to take a minute to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Overcast, or Pocket Cast. And please, please, please consider giving us a quick five-star review on iTunes. We started the ball rolling there, and I promise you it really helps spread the word about what we're doing, and I would sincerely and personally appreciate the effort. Now, How Hard Can It Be is sponsored, as always, by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio, the world's leading enterprise data-as-a-service platform. Deliver your data just like your applications and infrastructure as a service available instantly anywhere. For hybrid cloud, faster DevOps, and better business resiliency, Actifio is radically simple. Here now, my conversation with Human Choi. All right, with me today is Human Choi from Bain Capital Ventures. How are you, Human? Good. Go. Um, so um, Really looking forward to our conversation. We have not had a lot of uh, sort of foreign-born participants um, on the show, and, and we're going to do. A I'm glad I segment. get to
1: represent the <laughs> foreign community.
0: Yeah, yeah. The the um, you know, there's uh, like American companies will have somebody a VP of rest of world. That's right. You know,
1: <laughs> I mean, outside of US.
0: <laughs> I always love that uh, rest of world. So, uh, so yeah, looking forward to that, and then we're going to do our second segment, and we're going to talk about a health challenge that you had, which I think gives you a unique perspective as a healthcare investor. Sure, um, and uh, looking forward to that as well.
1: So, so let's start at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, where were you born, and where'd you grow up? So I was. Uh, it's actually a more complicated answer than than you probably expect. I was born in Korea, so Seoul, South Korea. For those of you listeners worried that I'm from North Korea, I'm from South Korea. <laughs> But uh, my parents were both uh, 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 musicians and my, my um, parents actually uh, also had a business in Japan. So I spent uh, most of my weekends in Japan. So I grew up both in Korea and Japan up until I was about 10 and then moved to Hawaii.
0: When you, when you say they were musicians, like, you know, they a were traveling, they were like no, traveling no. So with Bon Jovi my, or what,
1: what, what does that mean? My, my mother was a model and musician until she had me when she met my dad, and my dad was a number one singer in Korea for 40 years. Oh, my God, that's so interesting. Which most people don't realize.
0: That's incredible. And is he, like, you know, when you and your family go back, is he like a known person? Like when you're Uh, you're in Seoul, like people stop him to
1: get an autograph? Yeah, yeah. very, very famous. Oh, wow. uh, I haven't seen my dad in probably a decade, but uh, he uh, was very famous.
0: Are you estranged? or? or Yeah,
1: so he left the family 10 years ago. Oh, right. haven't haven't uh, seen or heard from him.
0: Sorry to hear that. Always, always difficult. Yeah. All right. So, um, do you feel an affinity for, you know, do you feel at home in Japan and equally is to, to South Korea?
1: I do. Uh, although, uh, uh, I think Jap, you know, in Japan, I never formally learned Japanese. So I spoke it, uh, just conversationally. Sure. And I grew up, uh, with neighborhood kids, but, uh, in Korea, I actually learned to speak, read, write, and, uh, sort of kept up with it. So I feel a little more comfortable in, in, in that uh, language.
0: So, um, I've spent some some time in Japan. I actually love Japan. I love Japan. Um, And, um, you know, Japanese are, they're very um, Sinocentric, you know? I would imagine that's a hard place to go as a little kid and be an outsider,
1: you know? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I didn't know any better. I grew up, and my parents were fluent in Japanese, so I, I sort of grew up, grew up there without knowing right. any difference and it was the same when I moved to America. I didn't know any better and and Hawaii is a great place to grow up as sure. an asian american uh, there's there's so many of us out there that I, I didn't feel and everyone's mixed yeah. that I didn't feel uh, alienated and it was a great place for me to grow up and and gain confidence as a, as a young. Uh, young young man, you know, getting away from childhood into to manhood.
0: Did you speak English as well by the time you got to Hawaii?
1: Yeah, so I uh, started attending an international school in pre kindergarten. So English, uh, although it was my third language, I was fluent. And uh, when we moved to Hawaii, uh, my mom and my sister came with us, uh, so we all moved together. And I was the only one that spoke English. So if you can imagine a ten-year-old kid going in and negotiating car leases, and sure. uh, you know <laughs> I had my own credit card and you know checkbook that I was balancing at, at 10, 11, 12, and right. uh, so it was it was a pretty unusual sight. I was I was unusually small for my age too. Grew up fast. So
0: and your siblings, you have uh, a younger sister. Younger sister. I know you went to Punahou High School. Punahou. Yeah. Uh, which is a sort of you know storied place. You know <laughs> among right. many people who've gone there. That's President right. Obama.
1: Piero Midiar. Uh, yeah, oh, know, he didn't finish there. Yeah, uh, uh, Steve Case. What, right, uh, what was
0: that like? What was your experience at Punahou? It was wonderful.
1: I yeah. uh, I, I don't know any better because I, I only sure, compare, Went there, yeah. right? But uh, from what I've uh, heard and compared with other people, it, it you matriculate very much like you do in college. You know, you go to your. Uh, it's very much you can set up your own schedule you go to different classes and the, and the campuses spread out it feels like a college campus yeah. so um you you sort of got to advance as quickly as you wanted to uh i i had a lot of different interests so i got to take a lot of different classes that were not in the core sort of curriculum so i i really enjoyed it um and and my wife uh, i met uh, at pono as well oh wow and so um yeah, I have a lot of good friends still uh, uh, that, that, that I graduated from there.
0: Where'd you go to college?
1: I went to Babson College.
0: Out here in Massachusetts.
1: Out here in Massachusetts. That's what brought me here.
0: Um, and did your wife elect to go to school out here too, or how did she, that did you I, navigate I have to be that? careful
1: about what I say on recording, yeah. but I convinced her to come to Babson. Uh, she came a year later, and she was interested in entrepreneurship, and you know, I, I convinced her that uh, Babson was the only place to go.
0: Sure um, managed to avoid putting a ring on it for a little while there. Uh,
1: we got married young. I was, I just turned 24. She was 22. So, uh, we, I, I basically told her I was going to marry her before we started dating. So she, she, I don't think she (laughs) had a a shot.
0: How was, how was your experience at Babson?
1: It was wonderful. I, you know, it's, I, I feel like I should take credit, but I really can't because it really was luck. And I found out about Babson out of sheer uh, happenstance, you know, so my guidance counselor asked me to put up a list of 10 of the top colleges you want to go to. And so I, I put together what I called the Asian list, you know, the the school list <laughs> that my, my parents would know, right, coming from a foreign country, sure. Harvard, Yale, Stanford, you know, I threw in Johns Hopkins in there and a couple others. And uh, she looked at it and went, you know, this is a great list. What do you want to do? Right. And at that point, I knew I wanted to do business. I knew I wanted to do startups and entrepreneurship. And I, I even at a young age, my father had always told me, you want to be you know, an entrepreneur, you want to be a CEO, you want to be your own boss, you want to do this. And so I always had this idea in the back of my mind, I wanted to go into business. So uh, I, I told her I want to do you know, startups, I want to be an entrepreneur. And she said, "You know, these are all liberal arts schools, you should go to Babson.
0: Right.
1: And so I looked into it, uh, I, I fell in love with it. Uh, that was the only school I applied to, and I got in, and that was it. Wow. What did you do after school? So I graduated actually a year early, and so I wanted to try my hand at being an entrepreneur. So started, uh, I started, I had four or five business plans I had worked on over the years, and there was one in particular that uh, um, sort of gravitated uh, towards me, which was um, in the home theater world. So I love, I'm a consumer tech guy, I love, uh, you know, as I mentioned, my parents are musicians, so I love music and audio. And so I, uh, I was at Best Buy trying to buy a TV and sound system and, and things like that for my first apartment. And uh, it was a horrible experience. It was a horrible experience. They just had no idea what they were doing. So yeah. you know, I, I researched it. I liked researching and, and found the perfect TV and speakers and wiring and everything and said, you know, it took a long time to figure this stuff out. Maybe I can uh, help other people. So I actually uh, started a company with a college uh, uh, friend of mine And, um, it was a business that where we would go and partner with real estate development firms and we'd set up sort of packages of, uh, movie, movie packages or, um, uh, sports packages. So, you know, you as someone, you know, renting a condo don't need to go and get all these fancy, you know, equipment. You can just, you know, pay a monthly fee and have your sports package. So it was, it was, I love the business. It was so much fun. There were two problems. One. It's a very long sales cycle of an impulse buy. Meeting, you know, you, I would talk to customers for four hours on what the benefit of of HD versus EDTV, um, Blu-ray versus HD DVD, and you know what plasma is versus LCD and LED and all this stuff. And then that customer would go to their best friend's house for Super Bowl party and see the TV and say, "Yeah, I'm going to get that." Yeah. Right. And then they go to Best Buy. Um, which which was always a bummer. Uh, and secondly, more importantly, uh, I could buy, and we our, we would buy our equipment from the same distributors that Best Buy and Circus City and some of these big conglomerates were buying from. But uh, we could actually buy our equipment cheaper through Amazon at that time. Where and, uh, when I saw that, I was I basically said, "This is <laughs> there's no business. Right. You know, we're basically consultants then." Right. And so I um, uh, decided that I wanted to learn how to build a fast-growing tech business. Uh, rather than running a small sort of consulting business. So I uh, joined a boutique investment bank out in Natick, uh, focused on architecture and engineering, and absolutely hated doing this kind of cash flows every day. Absolutely hated it. Um, I liked uh, helping entrepreneurs, but uh, just just financial engineering and, and doing valuations yeah. and ESOP, you know, ownership transition uh, was just very mind-numbing, you know. I wanted to get into actually helping build the businesses, and sure. And so I was having lunch with one of my former professors at Babson, and uh, he asked me what I wanted to do. And at that point, I had decided healthcare was where I wanted to really, you know, ha- hang my hat. And uh, that was for a couple of reasons. One was that it's the largest part of the GDP, right? I knew it wasn't going to go away. Um, I, uh, if I was going to spend you know 120 hours a week working, I had no idea what I was going to be doing—whether being an entrepreneur, hedge fund investor, what have you. I thought you know might as well be doing something that helps the world. And so uh, I told my professor, uh, you know, I want to do healthcare potentially on sort of the investment side. He said, oh, you should talk to one of my former students. Um, he's running an angel group that's focused on healthcare. And there were about fifty members. Uh, roughly half were very successful entrepreneurs in the healthcare sector. Mm-hmm. And the other half were VCs in the healthcare sector. So I started working for them part time. You know, twenty hours a week, twenty dollars an hour, and uh, got to know some of the members really well. And one of the uh, the gentlemen I got to know was uh, a, a retired venture capitalist. And uh, I was having breakfast with him, and uh, he, he he asked me what I wanted to do. I said, um, I'm interested in venture. He said, oh, you should come and talk to my uh, firm. I said, what do you mean your firm? You're retired. He's like, well, I'm, I'm the a- M in HLM. Um, his name was Jim Mahoney. So he got me right in there. had the just just raising you. Yeah, uh, the M in HLM. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, he uh, got me introduced to the managing partner there. And they had just raised a new fund. Uh, we're thinking about hiring a, a junior guy. So I got, I got hired in.
0: You know, when you look back, how much of it was strategy and how much of it was luck?
1: Even if I claim it's strategy, it's mostly luck. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really like like anything in in our world. It's it's really networking and, and timing.
0: But I think you you had the gift of knowing what you wanted yeah. at, at each stage. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like you were putting yourself in play in close proximity to people who were doing the thing you wanted to do. You know. And and that then there is a luck element, but but you put yourself in a position where you could be lucky. You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I, I surrounded myself with people that were very uh, successful and, and yeah. in the fields that I wanted to to be in. Uh, so you know that was purposeful. But um, you, know, you know, I, I feel blessed to have been at that. At that place, at the right time, and and that angel group has been wonderful. I mean, uh, I don't know if you know some of the members there. It was called Angel Healthcare Investors, but uh, uh, I still keep in contact with a lot of the members. And uh, my first deal was from that group. Right. Um, my first exit was from that group. I mean, it was it was a, a, a huge blessing for me uh, in in hindsight.
0: So you know, you you were sort of accumulating assets. You know, you had the experience of being an entrepreneur, and I'm sure. Uh, like all first time entrepreneurs, you learned how different it was from Whoa. what you expected and you learned that at the end of the day it's important to be able to sell stuff and like all the messy aspects of it and and whatever the, you know, mundane aspects of the financial engineering piece. You gotta know how to do a DCF if you don't go to B school and you know, it's worth <laughs> knowing right. that, right? That's right. Um, and um and then you, you know, the network and the whatever. So you had to kinda put those things together. Like as you as you look back, you know, are there any things that you took away from that set of experiences as an early investor that you feel were particularly valuable?
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, when I first joined HLM, I, I was, uh, this is, uh, once again, one of those advantages that I didn't realize when I first joined. There were seven general partners, and I was the only junior guy, and uh, I was an analyst when I joined, you know, right. 22 years old, and, um, you know, each partner thinks that they're deal is very important, which it is. And so I would have to run around and, you know, work for every single partner. And the benefit of that was that I got to work with different styles, um, different ways of thinking. Everyone had their, you know, unique view and lens and history of how they were viewing the world. So I got to see a lot of different types of deals, uh, just a lot of volume. And as a VC, I think it's important to um, have the reps, Right, as a junior person at coming Pats, in, you know. yeah, and as a junior person coming in, you know, you see one deal, you know, that's great. But if you see two deals, that's even better. You get to compare and contrast. Right. I mean, I got to see every single deal that came through, and you know, the partners would say, "Here, I don't want to look at this. You take a look at it." And so I, I got a lot of the scraps and a lot of the, uh, uh, the noise as well. But that really helped shape um, my early. Sort of growth as an as a investor. When I first joined, uh, it was supposed to be a two year and out sort of analyst position, like a traditional venture program. Yeah.
0: You go get your MBA
1: or whatever? Yeah, yeah. I, my, my uh, goal was to go get my Harvard MBA or Stanford or whatever it is and, and go back into the, the workforce. And uh, when I joined HLM, my father had left. And so I was, uh, you know, I had to take care of my mom financially and send my sister to college. And, and so I, I just couldn't afford to go to business school. Yeah. So I turned to, to the guys at HLM and said, look, you guys can kick me out, but I can't afford to go. I would love to take two years and go and travel the world and network and, you know, get that, uh, uh wonderful experience, but I just, I just can't do it. So, um, you can kick me out, but I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. And if, if I leave, you have to help me find a new job. Yeah. And so they said, that's fine. Every year I was very deliberate about, you know, one aspect of being an investor that I wanted to focus on. And as I did that, you know, I, I, I would hone that for sort a of skill. And the next year I would, I would apply that and then focus on something else. Yeah. The, the first year I, I really focused on was building a network. Yeah. Right. And, and it, it was frankly, plugging into deal flow. Plugging into dealflow yeah. because so, maybe you luck out and you find that one company, yeah, uh, but I, I don't pretend to know um, you know i I'm, I'm definitely not the smartest guy in the room ever. <laughs> so you know being able to identify that one company after one meeting is really challenging to do. yeah, building that network is really where I and it took more more than a year
0: yeah. um, even with your relationships from the angel group, you think? yeah, even with
1: the relationships yeah. because Uh, You know, when I joined HLM, we were a healthcare specialist firm. My colleagues were 30-plus-year veterans in healthcare, so they knew everyone. And so for me to come in and say, hey, I can add value by bringing in different types of deals or I can add value by helping, you know, get a different perspective about the deal wasn't easy. So, you know, I had to, you know, I I remember the first uh, seven years of my career, I was out breakfast, lunch, dinner, coffees multiple times a day nearly four or five days a week trying to, you know, build a network, you know, meet with people, meet with whomever I thought would be, you know, additive to my world and and sphere of influence and learning about healthcare. And I wasn't very strict about just, you know, I wasn't very prescriptive about saying, hey, this person's in this hospital, so I need to meet that person. It was just, I I like Mike, let's go hang out. I want to get to know you. And, you know, those organic sort of connections uh, thankfully, resulted in a lot of interesting connections for me and friendships, and that resulted in some uh, really good, uh, you know, uh, uh, networks for me to you know source deals from and and be able to find uh, unique uh, entrep- uh, entrepreneurial act- opportunities. Sure, it's a big part of the job. Yeah, um, yeah. So you mentioned.
0: Um, you know, identifying particular technologies, do you find that you're more often, you'll say, okay, you know, I feel like gene editing is the next big thing and I really want to have a play there and you're going to go find something there or is it a little less clean? Is it, is it more, you're out there encountering lots of different things? Like how much of it is driven by a thesis of a particular space of opportunity Mm -hmm. versus what you encounter and are interested in after the
1: fact? You know, um, i 'll give you round numbers I, I I would say if I look at the time i 'm spending evaluating companies, about a third of it 's driven by my own you know internally driven thesis, hey, this is what I want to you know I, I want to find something here sure um, about a third of it is pure opportun, you know, opportunistic you know people reaching out saying, "Hey, you need to talk to this person or that person and then uh, a, a third of it is um, something in between, where I'm, I'm being a little more uh, prescriptive, but I don't really know where it is. And right. it, some of it's driven by the market, some of it's driven by my intuition. Um, so there, there's sort of a third of the opportunities in that uh, segment. Uh, I'd say as a VC, you're always being opportunistic. But um, you know I always have three or four different hypotheses that I'm sort of tracking down and trying to either uh, get comfort around or try to f- identify opportunities in.
0: Yeah. Is it challenging, you know, lacking domain expertise in the science of healthcare? Like, you know, the, you know, I, I had a conversation with Kevin Bitterman a while ago, mm-hmm. obviously, you know, uh, Harvard PhD, Harvard Medical School, PhD. Brilliant. Yeah. brilliant guy, you know, coming from a, a coming at it from a very different space. Yeah. You know, has that been been a challenge to overcome? Do you feel like it's been a benefit in some ways to have a have a fresh perspective? Like, how, what's your take on that?
1: So I generally stay away from hard sciences or, or things that I, I feel like I, I don't really understand. Right. Uh, so I leave things like that to Kevin. Uh, and I feel like I have enough uh, friends in, in, in the industry that I can call, you know, that can give me a perspective sure. on that. You know, my job is not to be the expert. It's it's to know the experts and really l- rely on them. You know, just because uh, you know, I, I, you're a doctor doesn't mean that you know everything about healthcare, sure. right? Because you're so specialized anyway. So um, a, a lot of it is about identifying who the right person is to ask. Uh, and and that's where I spend a lot of my time. And it's the same for whether it's a technology-driven company. I, I'm not a technologist by any means, yeah. but I know enough to be dangerous and to write, a, ask the right questions. And that's where I think volume comes in for me. Seeing enough businesses, I can uh, sort of perambulate and, and come to these are the important questions to ask. These are the important things. This is where the pain point is. And at the end of the day, you know, where I get involved is uh, where the rubber meets the road. You know, customers willing to pay for this, adopt this, you know, use it. And so uh, a lot of my diligence is spent on uh, trying to get uh, customer feedback, potential customer feedback. And and I think that's where, you know, where I am in healthcare technology and services you know, if someone's not willing to pay for it and someone's not using it actively, it's, it's, it's a tough sell.
0: Is that the the threshold? I mean, you know, you, people another thing I think people don't don't commonly understand is that you're looking at hundreds of deals and you may do one mm-hmm. you know a couple a year mm-hmm. you know for you what makes the difference between something that gets over that very high bar yeah. versus I mean you, you're talking to a lot of smart people a lot of great yeah. ideas and saying no very smart people. Um, yeah. but but then there's there's a couple and w- w- for you what is it that puts an opportunity over the threshold of writing a check
1: so i'll get this is where i'll transition to the the b c v you know bank capital venture sort of filter because it is different than I think where I was before at h l m um, obviously you, you hear you know you back the team you know all all that's true, so I won't be uh, uh redundant in that uh for us you know we need to start with a big market you know it needs to be a big market opportunity you know for bank capital ventures you know we're we're a larger fund. So if it if we don't feel like the opportunity can become a hundred plus million large sustainable independent company, yeah. that's a tougher one for us to to really get behind. Right. Um, not not saying that the company necessarily needs to get there, but you know the total addressable market needs to be you know big in the billions. Uh, the the scalability of the product or service needs to be there. Uh, the team needs to have some element or foundation. Uh, that gives me comfort and confidence that um, they will be able to, you know, not just build a $20, $30, 40000000 million sort of top-line business, but that it can really become something big. And that doesn't mean that, you know, we won't add to the team or, you know, make some changes, sure. but, you know, there needs to be something there. The kernel
0: of a scalable team. Yeah,
1: something there, whether it's experience or domain expertise or something that, that we can sort of latch on to. Um, and, then, and then for us, uh, for big because we have such a um, long, large r- range of a check size, we can do $100,000 to $100 million. It's really, you know, diverse. So to be able to, um, for us to get involved, we, we need to uh, own a meaningful portion of the business. So typically we, we try to own a quarter to, uh, you know, 20 to 40% of the business, which seems like a lot, but, you know, we, we're only doing a few investments a year. So we try to get involved with things that we can really get behind, um, be influential in, and be a meaningful owner in so that we can help build a business for long-term.
0: And is that the, you know, that's the Bain Capital part of Bain Capital Ventures, you know, it's sort of a play of like where you're, you're you're active in the process of value creation. That's That's right. That's fundamental to the Bain Cap Ventures model. Yeah, that's
1: why most of my colleagues are heavy operating guys. We come in and we, we don't typically try to run the businesses, although one of my colleagues is Ben Nyes, sure. <laughs> uh, CEO of Turbonomics. But uh, we we try to be helpful and we want to be either the first or second phone call for the CEO. You know, yeah. we really want to be uh, uh, uh resource and you know what's nice is we're we're a totally independent, autonomous partnership within Bain Capital. Yeah. So we have separate LPs, we can we we the eight of us managing directors, you know, set the investment strategy, investment pace. Uh, we approved all the investments uh, so we truly are autonomous, but we're under the eighty billion dollar asset management umbrella and so we can get the benefits of being part of this you know huge this huge uh, platform and so we try to be helpful by introducing the companies to the greater ecosystem of Bain, uh, both on the public equity side private equity side credit and and you know we can we can be pretty pretty it can be pretty magical when we can you know, if all the gears align. Sure.
0: The breadth of your experience in terms of scale of venture firms, you're kind of at both ends. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the relative strengths and weaknesses of a small and more intimate place versus a, you know, larger and, you know, globally well-known one yeah. from both the perspective of an investor and from the perspective of an entrepreneur?
1: I'll start with the perspective from the investor because I I have that firsthand. And then uh, uh, the perspective from the entrepreneur will be a little more, you know, secondhand or
0: inferred
1: (laughs) Inferred knowledge Uh, for HLM and and smaller venture firms. You know, what you're getting is you're getting that senior sort of manager input, right? So uh, I, I, uh, at the end, when, when I left, you know, I was one of three general partners there and uh, when i got behind an investment you know i got behind an investment and i was active with uh, all my companies uh, the ceos called me you know some some of them call me every day some of them call me every week some yeah. call me every other month uh, but i was very active with these companies and it was intimate and and you got that with all of the partners right because and we only focus on healthcare so we lived and breathed healthcare day in day out. So and those had, conversations were
0: about what? Like, what is it? People stuff? Is it, it depends? Like, you know, it yeah. depends on the yeah.
1: CEO. You know, so uh, for a uh, one of my companies, that was a really early stage Series A, and I was helping them with the pipe sales pipeline, introducing them to potential customers, and uh, recruiting an independent board director. Helping uh, with comp discussions, right. uh, doing doing uh, reviews of the management team, uh, helping our CTO with product development and strategy. Right. So it, it really was you know everywhere for later stage companies it could be um, IPO readiness right going and talking to bankers yeah. how we should be thinking about uh, debt capital uh, versus uh, raising equity. You know.
0: I'm making an inference here, but it sounds like your your style as a board member is to ask. Where you
1: can help, yeah,
0: you know that's fair. You know, coming back to this question of small versus large, yeah. you think you're you're probably more inclined to get that kind of orientation out of smaller place? Or? I, I,
1: that, that's what I was going to say. I mean, it's uh, every single company I looked at. You know, I did the diligence behind and really uh, got involved with the companies, and uh, I knew every single one of our portfolio companies intimately, yeah. not just mine. You know, but my colleagues, and sure. We, it was a small firm, so we all chipped it's in, and helped out, and. Uh, it, it's, it gets very personal yeah. which I loved and it was a great training ground for me and I do retain a lot of that at Bain Capital Ventures uh, but it's a large organization so I don't, I don't know all of the portfolio companies that we have at Bain yeah. even now um, you know, I, I'm leading the healthcare uh, efforts and, and strategy at, at Bain Capital Ventures so hopefully I'll get to know all the healthcare companies but you know, it, I won't know the rest of my portfolios as, as intimately as I yeah. knew my previous portfolio.
0: What do you get in return for giving that up?
1: What you get is breadth of experience. So, for example, I'll give you an example. I've been looking at uh, security uh, in healthcare. You know, uh, HIPAA security and uh, uh, hospital sure. uh, data security. And one of my colleagues ha- happens to be the former CEO of Symantec, right? So uh, when we're looking at it, I can go and knock on his door and say, hey, Enrique, help me evaluate this. Yeah. Right? Can I talk to McAfee CEO? Can I talk to Symantec CEO? Uh, what are you seeing in the market? And so I'm getting that, that expanded view of the world that I, I otherwise wouldn't be getting, you know, within my healthcare enterprise. Right. And so... Uh, you know, that plus, as I, especially at Bain Capital Ventures, you know, we have Bain Capital, right, uh, the private equity folks. So I can call the private equity guys and say, hey, what are you seeing in the market here? Or the public equity guys. So, you know, I, I have that uh, built-in uh, network that I can draw down on immediately. So a lot more resources. You know, I can, uh, at a small firm, I can only work on a few deals at a time. Right. I re, because I, I'm doing all the work. Right. Whereas uh, right now at Bank Capital Ventures, I'm, I'm going through a lot more companies, you know, working a lot more at the same time because I'm leveraging uh, a lot more uh, uh, heads.
0: Yeah. No, I, can, I can see you're excited about it. You yeah. Know, th- yeah. It's a bigger platform, a bigger stage, more resources. Like it sounds like you were ready for that. You know, you had a great run yeah. at uh, HLM. right? Yeah, I was well, there like 10 years. 10 years. Yeah. You know? um, so you must have left there, you know, you know with a fondness for the place.
1: Oh, I, um, I, I just was on the phone with uh, one of my senior partners yeah. yesterday and uh, uh, just was just getting an update. I, 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 uh, I couldn't have been at a better place for the past 10 years and feel, uh, once again, very blessed that I was uh, trained. Uh, and I don't know if you know um, either of the partners, but they're just wonderful. And Everyone there have just been wonderful people. So even my transition out was you know, as pleasant as it can be, sure. and very supportive. Yeah, so.
0: these are these are um, th- these guys are optimizing for the relationship, not the <laughs> transaction. <laughs> That's right. Um, so, when you look out um, at the at the uh, healthcare space from your lofty perch at BCV, um, what are the what are the sectors or or things that you are particularly excited about these days?
1: Yeah, I'm spending a lot of time on a lot of different areas. Uh, one of them happens to be in the pharmacy automation space. I think. Um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, what I'll call bloated, uh, processes and cost, uh, in, in all aspects of, of the sort of supply chain. And so, um, you know, I think from end to end, the, the method of, you know, you as a patient getting medication can be improved a lot. And, um, whether you, you have the lens of a pharmaceutical company or from a hospital doctor or from a payer, you know, they're obviously incentivized to have you make sure that you're getting the right medication at the right time at yeah. the right cost. And so uh, spending a lot of time, you know, at, at various, both services, uh, uh, capabilities, technology enabled service capabilities, as well as pure digital tools to improve that process. Um, and it's always challenging because as I mentioned to you, sort of by criteria, it's it's easy to identify things that Im- marginally improve processes in healthcare. And it sounds great when you hear these things, you're like, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. But when you take a step back, you have to sort of say, okay, how much cost is this adding to the system? And what is the real return on investment here? And can you actually calculate that? And where the rubber meets the road for a lot of lot of the investments is that you know, there's soft ROI. It sounds good in theory, but you can't really measure it. Uh, I, uh, I'll give you one example. Um, there was a company that came in and said, oh, we can save nurses, you know, two hours a day by improving this process, you know, mm-hmm. in, in, in the computer. We can improve this process. <clears throat> well, when we dug in, it was, it was saving like 15 seconds here and 15 seconds there and 30 seconds there. And it was real savings. You know, it was improving their lives and the nurses loved it. They said, oh, yeah, I, I have two minutes here and I get to do this and this and this. But when you talk to the CFO of the hospital, they'd say, yeah, but you can't really see an extra patient during that 30 seconds, right? I can't have the nurse go and check in and do another blood draw in that 15 seconds. Right. So it's not usable time for me. So that's not real ROI. So, you know, you sort of have to take a lot of this uh, on paper, what looks good on paper uh, with a a certain level of um, uh, uh, skepticism. Yeah.
0: It's interesting, you know i i I don't think about um you know business model and business process innovation as part of healthcare, but it is not only from a cost standpoint, but I expect from an outcome standpoint as well
1: That's the biggest um, uh, that's the biggest thing I look for actually in healthcare. It's yeah. really a business model process, workflow, innovation um, that that's re- technology innovation happens so late in healthcare yeah. it takes decades, so it's it's uh, tough to. Uh, there are a few that I'm looking at are really cutting edge, but the, you know, the problem with those investments, uh, uh, thesis or, or that it, it can, it could be decades before it actually proves yeah. out. So I'm always a little worried Gotta about that. Got close the fund in 10 years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, pharmacy, once again, is, is one that I'm, I'm spending a lot of time on. Behavioral health is a huge market. I made two investments at HLM in the behavior health market. I think, uh, mental and emotional health, um, Uh, on one spectrum and going all the way to, uh, you know, opioid management, substance abuse, pain uh, management on the other end of the spectrum. Uh, There's a lot of different companies trying to address that, both uh, in terms of, once again, clinics or service businesses or technology, you know, telemedicine-enabled businesses, Hmm. digital tools, whether it's messaging, text messaging, online chat rooms, uh, you know, I I think that's a, a... Big focus right now for a lot of us in the in the healthcare venture space. Hmm. So uh, I, I I would suspect that that that's going to continue to be something that I spend a lot of time on. been um, spending a lot of time on new primary care models and new healthcare delivery models in general. Yeah, there's a lot of healthcare is is sort of changing not only with the advent of technology but value based care and yeah. Um, primary care is
0: kind of a mess. It seems. Primary, well,
1: it's, primary it's care. Well, primary care is like, so tough yeah. because. Uh, I was just talking to a company that uh, is trying to, you know, automate some of that primary care intake process. And, uh, you know, in Massachusetts, you, you want to see a primary care physician, it takes you four months. Yeah. Right. Non-emergency primary care visit, but four or six months. So right. It's, and it's no better it for the
0: doctors because they're seeing, you know, more patients. They're going to see more patients a week than they can Well, now
1: with EMRs, you know, they're spending an hour a day just typing stuff in, documenting, and, uh, they need to spend, you know, just as much time seeing more patients now that yeah. are coming into the system. So it's, it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of stress to the system. Um, you know, well, behavioral health is the same thing. If you, if you want to, if you're clinically diagnosed with depression, right, you, you have some serious mental issues. Guess how long it takes you to go see a psychiatrist? I don't know, 30 days, six months. Yeah. Which is not good. Yeah. <laughs> if you're clinically depressed.
0: Yeah. That's in Massachusetts. Uh, that's, that's across the nation. Yeah. 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 It's I would think it's, it's probably worse in Alabama or Mississippi than it is. Yeah. There sure. just aren't
1: enough clinicians.
0: Yeah. What, has, has the whole quantified self thing kind of run its course or are we just at the beginning of that one?
1: Um, I think we're at the very, very, very beginning of that. I, you know, quantified self is, it sounds great, but I still, you know, I'm, I'm a practicalist, you know, so what do you do with that information? Yeah. You know, what, what can you act on? What can you actually change? Not just act on, but actually meaningfully change. Um, I, I, I have a lot of questions about that. I think with better integration of technology, you know, we're all sort of used to ingesting data now. Um, it, it's going to come more naturally, but healthcare has always been challenging, I think, for consumers. Uh, we, we don't like to embrace healthcare. We don't like to think about it until yeah. we're sick. yeah, yeah. And so I, th- I think that quantified self is still uh, arm's length away for us, as we think about ourselves in, in, that, in that light. All
0: right, so speaking of getting sick, yeah. um, you, uh, you, you know, we're throwing a little bit of a curveball on this uh, this great journey that you just described. Tell us a little bit about uh, you know getting sick and and, and uh, what that experience was like for you.
1: Yeah, so uh, I, w- I was 31, uh, and uh, I had a severe cold, and uh, I I kicked the cold in a couple weeks, a week or two, and my lymph node was swollen and it really didn't go down. It was just one side, and it was not painful, so I didn't really worry about it. I thought it was an infection. Went to see the doctor. Doctors thought it was an infection. Uh, it was big enough that uh, my, my primary care physician thought I should go see a surgeon, so I, I went to see a surgeon, and he thought it was an infection as well. So every everyone sort of thought that it was an infection and you know that it was benign, and I was 31 and healthy and no no other, sure. you know. Uh, symptoms. And, uh, I, I, I had a needle aspiration, you know, a, a biopsy done. And, uh, the, the surgeon called me the next day and said, you need to go see a lymphoma specialist. Wow. I said, Oh, okay. That's, that doesn't sound good. He's like, no, don't worry about it. Don't, you know, it's not a big deal. <laughs> you should go see a lymphoma specialist. It's like, Hmm, I think he's an oncologist, right? It's like, no, no, don't worry about it. And I remember going in and my wife was with me and, uh, the doctor and I, I, I don't, typically get anxiety and, and worried. So I was like, you know, my wife was nervous. I said, no, oh, don't worry about it. You know, it's just a lymphoma guy. <laughs> and the, the doctor walks in and says, so we're going to have a really long discussion today. I was just like, oh, that's not what you want to hear. Yeah. And uh, sort of told me that I had, uh, he suspected I had diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and, you know, told me all about it. And uh, it, it it's interesting in that you know, at the moment when you hear, uh, that you have cancer, it, it, yeah, I, I, my my wife tells me I'm not the most emotionally connected anyway, (laughs) but for me, you know, I, I went into clinical mode, right? Hey, what does that mean? What is the survival rate? You know, what, what are the treatment protocol? Um, you know, what options do I have? Do I need to get a second opinion? And there's all these things running through my mind, but, if, if you look at it as sort of a patient journey, that intake process is really interesting because at any other point, you know, whether if you if you're trying to book a vacation or, you know, there's so much knowledge and insight that gets provided for you in, in the healthcare setting, you're sort of thrust into it. Yeah. And then you get overwhelmed and I, I, I'm a pretty, I would say a little more educated um, than the than the layman in terms of healthcare, but I still had no idea what uh, what I should be expecting, um, and and you know it, it's tough. Healthcare is so personal that it's tough to um, give an average, and the doctor tried saying, "Well, you're young, thirty one, average age of someone that gets this is sixty five year old white male, so you know we think that you'll respond well, we think that you'll do this, and we think." And then you sort of ignore the, you know, the, the band that's outside of that norm. And unfortunately I I was uh, exceptional (laughs) in in how I responded to chemo uh, therapy. And so I ended up uh, having a very, very severe uh, reaction first after my first chemotherapy and uh, had to be hospitalized for five days and quarantined and, uh, and, uh, you know, being the, the crazy uh, workaholic guy. I am. Mean, I, I was uh, on the phone with lawyers negotiating term sheets on a, on a deal, but, um, which my wife was not happy about. But in, in all through that process, what, what really stood out for me is that even though I was going through it, healthcare seemed very impersonal, right? We have a good way of uh, dealing with something on a clinical level but when you start putting in that personal, non-medical side of care, you know, hospitals just aren't built for that. Right? They don't know how to care for you while you're at home. Right. They don't know how to uh, uh, active, proactively reach out and, um, unless there's a question, unless there's a negative reaction, uh, which you know, I, I went to MGH, they were wonderful, and, and the doctors and nurses were all uh, world-class but even then, I, I, I remember coming home after my first chemotherapy and I, I didn't know what drugs I was supposed to take. And, you know, I, I was tired and my wife had listened to it, but she was overwhelmed because she had no idea, you know. And yeah. so there's just a lot of, of, of broken processes and, and, you know, parts of the system that just don't integrate in as a, uh, you know, like when you check into a hotel, it's a seamless process. You go in. Yeah check in, you get the key, you go in, when you get discharged, you you don't get discharged. It's a you know, uh it, it's a it's a very streamlined and pleasant experience whereas in healthcare just they they bring you in to try to get you out.
0: Yeah. I mean, the system is built to treat the disease, not the patient in a way. That's right. Um there's some parallelism though in you know your initial inclination which is to try to go deep and try to understand it and read all you could which yeah. is all the type a shit that I would do you know in a way it it helps you maintain the illusion of control of the situation yeah there's almost like maybe some reassurance in some of that some of the ritual of the hospital and the people come in and it's all very yeah. you know the, it's clinical in the in the truest sense of the word you know so i um, I,
1: I I enjoyed the experience of sitting down with my oncologist because he was very clinical yeah. and he would explain things to me and, but my wife hated it. she's, just, she's saying, wait, you have a 50% chance of this working or what? You know, yeah. I was like, no, 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 that's not what he's saying. Yeah. But, um, you know, there's th- that, that human element does get removed and it, it is that, that the way of connecting with the actual human being and not the patient yeah. and treating the patient's symptoms um, I found to be pretty stark, and and illuminating as as you think right. about the patient journey, and it, unfortunately we we view healthcare not as real healthcare but sick treatment. Yeah, yeah. Right. That's what we do right now. Healthcare is built around sick treatment. Right. And so as you as you look at the the ecosystem of care that's been that's been built, it's really around how do we identify people that are at risk. How do we make sure that they're getting treated, and then how do we make sure that they don't come back in? Right.
0: Well, it's it's remarkable because advancing wellness would be so much more capital efficient, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, no matter how much you know oat bran you eat, there's people still going to get cancer. So after that initial chemo experience, which regular vanilla chemo is, is so you know exhausting and whatever, and if you had a negative reaction. You know, did you end up getting through it? Did you go through the whole cycle? Yeah, so, and
1: so my, uh, what I originally had planned out with my oncologist was that it was going to be six cycles of chem- chemotherapy once every three weeks. And it's uh, like a seven hour process. It's horrible. Yeah. Um, there are people that had it a lot worse than I did. So I was thankful that it wasn't that bad, but it just, you know, all day of getting drugs. And there's one drug that's so caustic that the nurse has to gown up. And literally um, put the syringe in her hand and slowly put it into my veins because if it if it leaks out it causes necrosis. So she would do it over an hour, and it, it was just interesting to watch, uh, especially as a, once again as a healthcare geek, sure. you know, looking at it, going, what are, "What are you doing?" And I'm looking at all these different uh, companies and uh, flyers and saying, "Hey, what does that do? What does that do?" <laughs> you know, trying to do diligence on on the nurses. Um, but what's really uh, captivating for, for, for me was that you know, we were, we were supposed to do six cycles of chemo, and I had such a negative reaction the first time. I, I had this called neutropenia, and I, I became neutropenic, had zero white blood cells, and so ended up in the hospital. And afterwards, when I came out, the doctor uh, sat me down and said, well, we now know you're neutropenic, so we'll give you a shot, called Neupogen, which should help you bounce back. I said, well, why didn't I get that before? And I never heard about this. And he said, well, remember I told you if you get an infection, that's really bad? Yeah. It's like, this is why, you know, if, because you have zero white blood cells. But um, this shot is $10,000 per shot. Yeah. So we can't prophylactically give it to people. And we don't know who's going to be neutropenic or not. So now that we know, we'll give you a neupogen. So I have my second chemo, <clears throat> got a neupogen shot, and promptly got an infection. I had uh, double conjunctivitis and horrible pain. And I was quarantined in my house. And then the third time I woke up, uh, once again, with an infection, probably the worst pain I've ever had, um, ever. And, uh, I basically called the doctor and said, look, I can't do this anymore. I'd rather die. Just, we need to stop chemo. And he said, yeah, you're not, you're, you're, you're the top 0.1% of bad reactors to chemo. So let's get you off that. And Uh, so I I transitioned to uh, 17 sessions of uh, radiation so 17 straight days of radiation which was a walk in the park compared to chemo
0: yeah Jesus what an ordeal (laughs) Um, you have a normal life right you're a normal healthy person and you're out in the world and you're doing your shit this is a starts off as a major inconvenience and you deal with it like a rationalist you want to understand it and whatever and and you know that journey takes you to a point where by the third time i mean you must have just been at your at your wits end um it's hard for me to even relate to that yeah. you know
1: like what that must feel like well one of my one of my gifts not i don't have a lot of gifts but one of my gifts is compartmentalizing so i'm able to effectively sort of block things out and not really you know have to deal with it you know physically it was probably one of the most difficult things to go through yeah. mentally i was you know, uh, thankfully my, my colleagues were very supportive. They, they told me take time off, do whatever you want, but yeah. I kept working. And, uh, it that really, uh, I was really thankful I was in healthcare because uh, the investments I, I was working on meant something. You know, it was, uh, I was working on a, a, uh, company that was doing uh, cognitive behavioral therapy for people that are going through anxiety and stress. And I was like, this is perfect. Yeah. I, I know what, what that would be like. Right, right. Um, so, you know, it gave me meaning in, in the work that I do, and it sort of validated the, the, the seven years or ten, ten years of, you know, spending dinners and lunches and breakfast away from my wife and, you know, yeah. really hitting the pavement. Uh, and it was, it, you know, it gave me a purpose, and, and I didn't know if I, I had hoped that I would survive and that I would be normal and, and healthy, but I didn't there was no guarantee for sure. that, and so, as I was looking at uh, what I was doing you know I, I I got a lot of satisfaction from the work I've done so far and felt um, validated that I was on the right path
0: yeah so describe the journey back, so you get through the the radiation and um uh, a walk in the park as you say it was a walk uh, in the comparatively park. you yeah. know and um and I bounced know.
1: back really quickly yeah uh thankfully uh my doctors had prescribed the right you know, course of action. And, uh, it, despite the fact that I was a negative, you know, had severe negative side effects, it meant that the, the medication was working. So I, I bounced back as soon as I, I finished chemo. Chemo is really the the hard part. So, um, so
0: you did get medical benefit from the chemo uh, with respect to the cancer. Yes, yeah. Yes. Yes. And, and so that, that sort of set up the, the radiation.
1: That's and, right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it, it, and i I was productive Th- thankfully i you know one of the nice things about uh, sort of the the work I do is that i can you know and a work that a lot of us can do is that we can work remotely and you know call in and and do video and so uh, i I kept being productive I actually got a couple of investments done during that period and so I felt like i was i was relevant and being being productive and I think that helped a lot in me bouncing back yeah um, i don't know if I, what I would have done if, if I was just sitting at home, not, not able to work where some, there were some days where I couldn't physically because I was so, so tired and, and sick, yeah. but the fact that I was able to continue to, to work and, and, uh, be a part of the part, you know, part of the, the community really helped. Yeah. And so, and, and, you know, I had a lot of support from friends and family. So I felt like it was easier for me to bounce back. Uh, and, and it was a really quick recovery. Yeah. Post that. All right,
0: so um, so you clear that, and at some point you show up at work for a normal day again, and you're you know you're you're back after it. Um, how has it changed you? How has it changed you as an investor, the way you look at opportunities, the way you think about you know the business you've dedicated your life to? Yeah,
1: I went into this a little earlier, but it, it first validated the my my affinity for healthcare. Uh, you know, I, I originally came in because I thought I wanted to help the world or do something huge to, part of the economy. Yeah, huge part of the economy. It's yeah. growing, yeah, yeah, right. And uh, it, it, it validated that healthcare is where I want to spend time. But more importantly, that uh, I, I wanted to make investments in companies that actually mattered. And whether even if it's a technology company or a service company, that it has to meaningfully affect healthcare in some way, and not just on a minor, hey, improved this little thing here on the side, but you know something that really drives uh, uh, improvement in care. You know, uh, reduces a lot of costs out of the system so that more people can get, get uh, the right care, things like that. And so, I feel like it it solidified and clarified a lot of the things that I was doing. Uh, and then frankly, then you'll, you'll, you'll laugh. You know, I, I think my tolerance for dealing with, uh, uh, assholes was, was pretty low, but now it's pretty non-existent. <laughs> you know, I, I just don't have any patience for it. <laughs> it's, it's not, uh, not, not that I, I don't want to make a lot of money and then be surrounded by people that are successful, but if it means I have to be with people that I don't like, I'd rather not.
0: Yeah. Life is short. You life know, is you, way you too you short. You gotta enjoy the journey.
1: The No Asshole Rule,
0: one of the great greats. Um, wow, really puts uh, your day-to-day bullshit in perspective. Um, really inspired by my conversation with Human. Appreciate him coming in and opening up and sharing that with me and with uh, all of you as well. Innovation matters. It affects lives, um, especially in healthcare, but I would say in technology as well. And uh, you know, those of us who, who do this for a living you know, should really feel fortunate not only for our lives, but uh, for the fact that we get to spend them uh, trying to uh, make a difference in the world. Well, hopefully this podcast helped make a difference for you. How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio, The world's leading enterprise data as a service platform deliver your data just like your applications and infrastructure as a service available instantly anywhere. For hybrid cloud, faster DevOps and better business resiliency, Actifio is radically simple. Thanks for sticking around and we will see you next week.